Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. With ignorance and arrogance, success is assured. Mark Twain. That quote is the motto for my fucking life. Acquire a little bit of self-belief, commit yourself to a seemingly unattainable goal, and then goddamn figure it out. And this method, it's really good for either surprising everyone with massive output you're not technically qualified for or wallowing in suffering, failure, and looking like an idiot until you figure it out. For example, applying this method to deer hunting before really having the requisite skills is a recipe for six hours straight of shivering, hypothermia, missing a deer, and wishing you were an android. But usually, it's amazing what someone with a hard dick, a strong will, and a dream can accomplish. And this, my priest, is one of those tests. This could go either way. I could end this series with crazy, wild rock star hair and thousands of new fans, or reality could dissolve around me and I realize it isn't rock star hair, it's fucking pubes. I got roofied and someone glued pubes all over me. Because today, I engage in the intellectual version of Walking Lunge's Death Sets. Death Sets, pioneered by Tom Platts. You go to failure on an exercise like leg extensions, and then you go as far as you can. So maybe you're halfway up, and then you fail, and you go a quarter of the way up, and you push. And there's a video on YouTube where he's yelling, More! More! Kill me! Kill me! And I feel like you can pretty much, that's the secret of life right there, that attitude. But you do that until you can't move the weight at all. Uh, actually, probably not that correlated to getting jacked, but uh, really cool. Jordy and I used to do these at Cardinal Fitness at 5.30 a.m. in high school, surrounded by adults and concerned but curious spectators. And the worst exercise in the history of time, walking lunges, was obviously too crazy to even consider using with death sets like what am i supposed to do just rip all my tendons off fall to the ground covered in vomit and never walk again yes exactly because this series is that we cover david deutsch's the beginning of infinity a tome the likes of which we haven't yet seen but have only been slightly rivaled by anti-fragile the selfish gene and basic economics Damn, my penis turtles back inside me at just the mention of what is to come. So how did we get here? How did we get about to embark on walking lunges, death sets for our minds? Well, I found some damn Twitter thread by this guy, a rich, wise Indian Musashi Naval. And that Twitter thread was how to get rich without getting lucky. And I started to read it, and then just by digging into the internet, I started to investigate, and I found an enterprising fellow, former male model and failed sandwich maker Eric Jorgensen, and he had convinced Naval to let him turn his tweet storm into a book, The Naval Manac. I covered it on this podcast. Eric himself actually listened to it and said, cool pod bro because he's too efficient to type podcast that's right learn some fucking lessons son and even naval gave it a like on twitter though i think four percent chance he actually listened and what began as a little jaunt hoping to steal some get rich quick scheme turned into realizing god damn it the secret to getting rich as hell and having everything you want in life is to grow yourself into the type of person who is rich. Read, understand mental models, acquire skills, develop specific knowledge. And with that, Naval recommended a bunch of books. Books on economics, books on investing, books on evolution, and finally books on science. 
because the key to understanding the world, getting rich and growing wings, scales, and a hundred mechanical arms is deeply understanding multiple different ways of thinking. First principles that can be applied to anything. And for me, I've always been good at soft skills, arguing, sales, storytelling, German, reading, vocab, sniffing out someone's deepest, most hidden insecurity and talking to them about it. And I've somewhat detested the harder skills. Now, a bit of this was a deep-seated misunderstanding about the way and not realizing that anything can be learned through deliberate practice. But a lot of it, I'm an eminently practical fellow. If I couldn't apply it, if it wasn't directly related to something in my life, or if I couldn't see how the fuck I would ever use this in my life, bitch, I'm not interested. Growing up, I also had two really bad associations with science. First, in high school, we had to dissect fetal pigs. Now, I wasn't super grossed out, uh, but I just like, I just, I just didn't really understand. Like, what, what do these pigs do to us? Like, did, did they eat our crops? No. Okay. So, so wait, we're just, we're just killing them for fun. Uh, okay. And you want me to, you want me to just stab it? See, I don't understand. I thought this was a school for children. And like, I mean, do you need me to shout anything when I stab it? Like, die, pig, die. No, just, just write my feelings in a lab report, huh? This is a fucking weird ass class. But one of the steps was to cut it open and pour out all the formaldehyde and pig juice into the sink. Well, I was partners with an equally good science student, aka fucking horrible, and he had a similar level of patience to me, aka fucking none. So he decided that pouring the juice, that was taking too long. So like doing back blows on a choking baby, he hammers the fetal pig. One, two, three. Oh, and that worked. All the juice came out at once into my fucking mouth. Like the world's most fucked up game of slap the bag. He backblowed all the formaldehyde and pig juice directly into my open mouth. I pretty much wrote off science after that. But the crowning blow was I've always wanted to get jacked. And I briefly thought, you know, maybe I want to major in getting jacked. And I, I took some kinesiology classes. But turns out it was less getting jacked, more like how to run. And uh, I was like, fuck this. But one of those times I was uh, in a fraternity and this class took place during pledge shift, this kinesiology class. Now, my fraternity didn't haze us at all. You know, they were very clear to say that they didn't do that. But there were some activities you could say were suggestions. And so one of them uh, was supposed to be a super serious tour around campus. We'd go and look at all the other fraternities who were no longer with us. You know, these big giant mansion buildings that used to hold a fraternity, but then like now have been sold and just have a bunch of meth heads in it. Uh, and, and, and there's a serious message. Hey, fuckers, don't mess this up. We're giving you responsibility. So it was somber. It was cool. Uh, a couple of my friends are idiots and they accidentally pre-gamed it. So they were like struggling to be serious, but we made it and they walk us into the dark basement and we think, okay, more serious time. Maybe this is the hazing. If it is, I'm ready to fucking fight. And surprise, we made it. It's a giant party on a Tuesday. And uh, we got split off into our, our pledge families, which is like, just like, hey, this is your pledge dad. He will help you. He's your mentor. And there's a whole lineage of them. And, and each family has their own little traditions. It's cool, kind of weird, but also still cool. And uh, my family had a game called the Goldschlager game. Now, I've never really played it when my memory was working fully. So I can't exactly remember the rules. But the summary is there's kind of some dice. And then according to some basic rules of thumb that are really unimportant, you lock the door and you don't leave until you drink a bottle of Goldschlager. Now, there's like four people playing. So it's not, you know, it's totally fine. Might or might not have blacked out and reenacted that new awesome song, Sun Eater by Lorna Shore. But I was a good student. You know, I was not going to miss my kinesiology lab the next day at 8 a.m. So I show up, but I had a similar but much more fucked up surprise than when we went in the basement. It was a surprise party. This was surprise VO2 max testing. Now, I don't know if you guys know about that, but that's basically how far is your body capable of pushing it? It's like a failure tests for a car. So I show up extremely hungover. Okay. 
still wasted and I have to put a mouthpiece attached to a tube and run at a progressively faster interval each minute until, quote, I can't go anymore, which that sounds like a fucking challenge to my honor as a man. So I sprint and sprint and my soul leaves my body. I'm panicking. I'm so hungover. I'm still wasted. The frumpy but still female teaching assistants trying to cheer me on. Go, Troy, more. Push it more. This is hell. Actual fucking hell. And then to add insult to injury, after I got so sweaty, you know, you could have licked my arm and gotten a buzz. I had to spend two and a half hours putting all the data into a lab report. And after that, what started with drinking from the wellspring of the fetal pig and ended in VO2 max testing, I swore off science. I nurtured those kernels of doubt. Cells? Probably made up. Bigfoot? definitely real and i vowed never to learn another scientific principle but it appears i was wrong my critique that science wasn't practical was wrong after naval's treatise on how to get rich i realized i just wasn't open-minded because if we truly want to get rich without getting lucky we build mental models and what better mental model than science. So it is with that, that the prodigal son who the father actually never even loved. God damn it. Why are you back? I thought you fucking died. Don't expect dinner, boy. Why can't you be like your brother? He returns me to science, the beginning of infinity. So basically this book is written by like a genius physicist for physicists. And I believe the technical term is shit be fucking crazy. Uh, a synthesis of a whole bunch of scientific concepts, uh, David, and, and after what I went through, I, we are fucking for sure on a first name basis. David outlines why knowledge creation is actually more powerful than AIDS, but like in a good way, and actually the secret to life dominating our environment, and I'm not even joking, becoming immortal. Areas where innovation and reason are allowed to flourish become the wellsprings of future gains. Areas where it is shunned, death. Really only beginning in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, this power must be protected at all costs. And finally, according to Naval, anyone who deeply understands this book is almost fucking guaranteed to get rich as hell, boy. And as a wise man once said, strap in, get your dicks ready, it's time to who is David Deutsch? So he's a physicist at British Harvard, AKA Oxford. He probably knows Richard Dawkins. He pioneered quantum computing. He believes we live in the multiverse. He's so smart, he founded an actual method to parent children better. He gives Rat to Leb a run for his money in pure goddamn intellectual horsepower. And for those who dare listen on, blood death fire await us this is the hardest book we've ever covered on here if you graph the muscle mass of the average reader of this book and then compared that side by side to the average prisoner of war virtually identical it's going to be long it's going to be hard if you want you can pussy out but if you can hold out until the end open your mind to the truth and remember to be a kusemono this might just be the thing that allows you to talk to snakes and possess other people with a single thought into the book. Progress that is both rapid enough to be noticed and stable enough to continue over many generations has been achieved only once in the history of our species. Oh God, it's already so crazy. It began at approximately the time of the scientific revolution and is still underway. Some people don't realize the importance of this but they're idiots. In this book, I, being David, argue that all progress, all progress, both theoretical and practical, has resulted from a single human activity, the quest for what I call good explanations. So if you want to know something really practical I learned, priests, at the end of wiping, when you, when you can't quite get that last little bit, if you stand up, the angles change, one wipe you're clean so he's saying both theoretical you know like math but also practical how to clean yourself that's resulted from a single human activity the quest 
for good explanations. And how far can this quest take us? Must progress come to an end, either in catastrophe or, or in some sort of completion? Or is progress unbounded? I answer, the latter. That unboundedness is the infinity referred to in the title of this book. Explaining it and the conditions under which progress can and cannot happen entails a journey that we're all gonna fucking die on, uh, what? Uh, through virtually every fundamental field of science and philosophy. Jesus Christ, I'm gonna throw up already. Chapter one, the reach of explanations. And I'll say it now, this whiskey sponsored my podcast. If we look up at the stars, they just look like little dots. But if you ask an astronomer, they will tell you that those dots are spheres with nuclear energy transmuted like the ancient goal of the alchemists. If you look at the Milky Way, it's a galaxy of billions of stars. And within the reach of our current telescopes, we can see more galaxies than stars in our galaxy. Something, something, something. The universe is way bigger than that. My eyes roll into the back of my head. How can the numbers be so big? And that whole universe is just a sliver of an enormously larger entity, the multiverse, which includes vast numbers of such universes. God damn it, David. But it all exists according to laws of physics that we know quite a lot about. How do we know? So what he's saying is, we look up at the stars and we're like these little fucking hairless monkeys and we're like, oh, look at the dots. But he's saying, we actually know a lot about the dots and we know past the dots and we know that there's galaxies filled with dots and then there's universes which I don't even know, man. Crazy. But how do we know that shit? We know it through, through the reach of our theories. Even though we're so far away, we look at stars and know that we're looking at the white hot surfaces of distant nuclear furnaces. We know that from theory. Scientific theories are explanations, assertions from what is out there and how it behaves. Where do these theories come from? Well, for most of history, it was mistakenly believed that we derive them from the evidence of our senses, a philosophical doctrine known as empiricism. But in reality, Scientific theories are not derived from anything. We do not read them in nature, nor does nature write them into us. They are guesses, bold conjectures. Human minds create them by rearranging, combining, altering, and adding to existing ideas with the intention of improving upon them. And I cut out so much, like 20 pages, where, like, which I can summarize as he is triggered by that idea. So. Let me explain for us baboons here. So basically, back in the day, I don't know what time of day, 1700 day, uh, there was a thought that like if I just sat in room and I thought hard enough and I looked at everything, like God damn it, I could figure out the universe. I could look up at the stars and through through careful observation of my senses, man, God damn it, I could figure out the secrets to the world. Uh-uh, that's fucking wrong, he would say. He would say, actually, what happens is we make a guess. We have a conjecture aka a guess and then we test it we we try to prove it wrong and when we can't prove it wrong it adds to the little body of knowledge but we can't get anywhere through just experiencing from our senses that's called empiricism whatever is idiotic got it as the ancient philosopher heraclitus remarked no man ever steps in the same river twice for it is not the same river and he is not the same man for if one cannot derive predictions from experience, definitely one cannot derive explanations. Discovering a new explanation is inherently an act of creativity. Such ideas do not create themselves, nor can they be, can they be mechanically derived from anything. They have to be guessed, after which they can be criticized and tested. But for those of us for whom creating knowledge means understanding better what is really there and how it really behaves and why, error is part of the very means by which this is achieved. So he's saying it's not like we're just sitting there trying to like uh, and just feel the universal truth. We make a guess, we fail, but we're a little bit closer. We make a guess, we fail, but we're a little bit closer. He calls that fallibilism. What I've learned is that when you get to a certain level of IQ points, you love to name anything. So it's like, ah, 
midgetism, fallibilism. So, it is fallibilism, not merely the rejection of authority that is essential for the initiation of unlimited knowledge growth, the beginning of infinity. It's, and it's actually insane that we can know what's going on inside the sun or understand what happened right after the Big Bang. But for hundreds of thousands of years, we couldn't do this. We would look up at the stars and understand nothing. And even if looking at the stars was too stupid, in every single area of people's lives, they wanted to make progress. How to be warmer, how to be safer, protection from disease, wild animals, how to get richer, but on the time scale of individual lifetimes, they almost never made any progress. Discoveries such as fire, clothing, stone tools, bronze, they happen so rarely that from an individual's point of view, the world never improved. You know, it's like, what's the probability that when you need to fart, someone just farted and you can free fart it? You know, you can, you can fart right after their fart and then yell at them and blame them. That's how, that's how innovation happened. It was just by chance that you just happened to know someone else farted and then you could fart. In short, they wanted to create knowledge in order to make progress, but they did not know how. Now, here's, a, here's an insane fact. The world was like this forever until a few hundred years ago. Think about that. For the, for the entire fucking history of the world, but also all human existence until a couple hundred years ago. It was like that. Innovation just happened at the probability of a, of, a, of a free fart. Then, a powerful new mode of discovery and explanation emerged, which later became known as science. Its emergence is known as the scientific revolution because it, it succeeded almost immediately in creating knowledge at a noticeable rate, which has been increasing ever since. So what changed? Well, to answer that, David's gonna walk us through a little damn context. The scientific revolution was part of a wider revolution, AKA the enlightenment. I know barely anything about that, but hell yeah, here we are, which brought progress into many fields. The enlightenment was a rebellion against authority in regard to knowledge, because before then, it was assumed that everything you'd ever need to know was already discovered by the wisdom of the ancients. You guessed it. Anything new was the devil. Is bloodletting not good enough for you? Don't you even love your mom? Like, what? What? I just was looking to, I just feel like cutting my arm is not the right thing to do. You hate your mother. <sighs> Fine. Here's my arm. Cut it. And with this revolution came a sustained tradition of criticism. Before the enlightenment, that was very rare. Usually, like, the whole point of a tradition was to keep things the same. You know, one consequence of this tradition of criticism was the emergence of a methodological rule that a scientific theory must be testable. So he's saying, with this damn enlightenment of, like, maybe we can find a better way, along came criticism, and along came testability. So, you know, no longer could you say that Odin did that. It's like, oh, somebody killed him. It was Odin. But now we're open to testing things. And if things don't pass the test, huh, that's a clue. But again, as corporate executives say, that was necessary, not sufficient. You know, we've been testing for witches for years. Not enough. Think about the, the sun moves, moves through the sky because a god drags it. But that's a myth. But when, when myths are altered, or superseded by other myths over the course of centuries, the new ones are almost never closer to the truth. So, so with that saying, um, so he goes into this whole fucking thing about myths, drawing the conclusion that like a myth that the sun moves across the sky because some some bitch with a chariot drives it. Okay, but then let's say that let's say that a new myth came about, and it's it's not the sun moves around the earth because some bitch with a chariot drives it. It's because there's a magic force that sucks from one side of the earth to the other. And that's what makes the sun move. Well, none of those fucking, like, that's not a better explanation. That's just a different one. The reason those myths are so easily variable is that their details are barely connected to the details of the phenomena. In general, 
When theories are easily variable in the sense I've described, experimental testing is almost useless for correcting their errors. I call such theories bad explanation. And a person isn't capable of just making progress by, willing, by being willing to drop a theory when it's refuted. One must also seek a better explanation of the relevant phenomena. This is the scientific frame of mind. So he's saying, back in the day, there was just these dumbass explanations for everything. And then they're like all these cultures like, hey, hey don't you love your mother? But then even if we do a test and we're like, oh, fuck. I'm like looking at the sun with the telescope and I ain't see no damn Apollo. And we're like, okay, fine. I'm going to drop it. That's one half of the scientific frame of mind. But the other half is you have to seek good explanations. The quest for good explanations is, I believe, the basic regulating principle of not only science, but of the enlightenment generally. It is the feature that distinguishes those approaches to knowledge from all other, and it implies all those other conditions for scientific progress I have discussed. It is what made that momentous difference to the rate of progress of all kinds. And that's all we're trying to do here, priests. We're just trying to seek good explanations. And throughout history, there were probably pockets in specific domains where people were, they, they were looking for them. You know, they were trying to find good explanations. I'd guess that in the realm of the sword, Musashi was very open to, to finding the best explanation. But without a, without a widespread tradition of criticism and when, and when not applied broadly, these pockets fizzled out. But the sea change in the values and patterns of thinking of a whole community of thinkers, which brought about a sustained and accelerating creation of knowledge, happened only once in history with the Enlightenment and its scientific revolution. So you're saying only once in the history of the human species has there been the right ingredients in this goddamn cast iron pot of love to poop out success. An entire political, moral, economic, and intellectual culture, roughly what is now called the West, grew around the values entailed by the quest for good explanations, such as tolerance of dissent, openness to change, distrust of dogmatism and authority, and the aspiration to progress in all ways. Uh, he brings up the actual true explanation of why the seasons change. Uh, but whatever, that's a good explanation because it's hard to vary because all its details play a functional role. So like, okay, I'm being a dick, but like the, the actual explanation of like the change in seasons is something like the earth is tilted. Okay. It's on its axis. And so, uh, that's important. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm, I'm a fucking professor over here. Uh, and so, but he's saying that all those ingredients of the whole theory, they're like really fucking important. You know, like the earth is tilted and it's relate it's close to the sun, but it's also close to the moon. <laughs> And, uh, you know, if you move the moon around, you know, that, that changes shit. That's, that's basically what he's saying. If I'm, if I'm like, I'm tracking David, you know, I'm a genius. But when a formerly good explanation has been falsified by new observations, it is no longer a good explanation because the problem has been expanded to include those new explanations. Thus, the standard scientific methodology of dropping theories when refuted by experiment is implied by the requirement of good explanations. So he's saying in this whole quest for good explanations, you know, you're throwing out ideas and oh fuck, I think this idea is good. But then you get that idea gets contradicted by an experiment. And so you have to be open like, well, I am looking for the best way. And since that was just contradicted, God damn it. Maybe we can keep 20% of what we thought was the truth. And now we got to move on and find something better. Inventing falsehoods is easy and therefore they are easy to vary once found. Discovering good explanations is hard, but the harder they are to find, the harder they are to vary once found. And so he walks in the example now of how, even if you're an ancient Greek mathematician and you know the axis tilt theory, so you know that the world is tilted, you've never read, you've never heard of seasons. So let's say you're living in Greece, you know, but you ain't got no seasons. Every, every, the season's called warm. Okay, you don't know about the Southern Hemisphere. You don't know about Antarctica. You don't know about how, you know, Australia's flipped around from the US in a lot of ways, but especially the seasons. Your friends and 
and colleagues may ridicule you. This idiot thinks the world gets cold. You may, you may try to modify your explanation so that it, it'll fit with the party line. You will fail. That is what a good explanation will do for you. It makes it harder to fool yourself. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that you thought of the axis tilt theory yourself. It is your conjecture, your own original creation. Yet, because it is a good explanation, hard to vary, it is not yours to modify. It has an autonomous meaning and an autonomous domain of applicability. It is the way. Tilted planets in similar orbits in other solar systems must have seasons. Planets in the most distant galaxies and planets that we shall never see because, holy fuck, they were destroyed eons ago. And also planets that have yet to form all obey the law. If they have tilted axes, they will have seasons. Okay, um, that's kind of fucking crazy, I will admit, David. Good point. The theory reaches out, as it were, from its finite origins inside one brain that has been affected only by scraps of patchy evidence from a small part of one hemisphere of one planet to infinity. This reach of explanations is another meaning of the beginning of infinity. It is the ability of some of these explanations to solve problems beyond those that they were created to solve. Fuck. Thus, the reach of an explanation is neither an additional assumption nor a detachable one. It is determined by the content of the explanation itself. The better an explanation, the more rigidly its reach is determined because the harder it is to vary an explanation. The harder it is, in particular, to construct a variant with a different reach, whether larger or smaller, that is still an explanation. The old ways of thought, which did not seek good explanations, per permitted no process such as science for correcting errors or misconceptions. The sun is gone! Bring the wizard! The emergence of science, and more broadly, what I am calling the Enlightenment was the beginning of the end of such static parochial. He's going to say this a lot. We're probably going to have a drinking game. Okay, I said it. <sighs> Every time he says parochial, drink. I can't be responsible for your behavior afterward. Uh, parochial, which I had to go I had to look this up. That basically means like narrow-minded and and not applying to the world. So like a parochial viewpoint would be if you grew up in a in a village in the Alps. And you think, you know, hey, man, I, I can marry my brother. And that's that's called parochial. You know, it's also called incest. Oh, wonderful. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Uh, so, we were really parochial. I, I'm really trying not to tie the word parochial and incest together, but unfortunately, it's been done. It initiated the present era in human history, unique for its sustained, rapid creation of knowledge with ever-increasing reach. Many have wondered how long this can continue. Is it inherently unbounded? Or is this the beginning of infinity? That is to say, do these methods, so science, so good explanations, do these methods have unlimited potential to create further knowledge? Read the title and weep, pussy, what do you think? And yet, as I mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, gold, so he said, you know, nuclear energy in the sun is transmuting whatever into gold. Okay, so there's gold in the sun. Gold can be created only by stars and by intelligent beings. If you find a nugget of gold anywhere in the universe, you can be sure that in its history, there was either a supernova or an intelligent being with an explanation. Fuck. Chapter one done. Is this whole book going to be like this? <sighs> Closer to reality. Uh, so David is old as hell. And before they invented the internet, he tells the story of how astronomers used to use microscopes on top of printed out galaxies to draw conclusions. Uh, and then he has this, this like weird ass tangent about how like experiments are fun. Okay, buddy. You ain't never drank from the fetal pig, I see. Then he looks at his microscope and he's like, oh my God, what is this? And he asks his astronomer friends and they're like, you're an idiot. That's called a smudge. That's an error. 
in the printout. And and then David goes in this whole edible induced fucking musings about how, you know, we even though we're still here on earth, we're using instruments to bring us closer to the truth even though we're getting further and further from physical experience. So, what he's saying is again, he's like kind of triggered by this whole like empiricism thing. And so, you know, there's the thought of like, well, look up at the sky and you will see but he's saying, nah, bitch, I'm, I'm actually getting farther away from the sky, but I'm using tools like a microscope to get closer to the truth. Thus, once again, proving that empiricism is idiotic. Okay. So I was indeed looking at galaxies. Observing a galaxy via specks of silver is no different in that regard from observing a garden via images on a retina. Explanatory theories tell us how to build and operate instruments in exactly the right way to work this miracle, aka using tools to get closer to the fucking truth. So when a so when astronomers look at them, aka galaxies, they see stars. So I just include that because like David loves science. Okay, got it. Chapter three, the spark. Uh, back in the day, all explanations were basically anthropocentric. Anthropocentric, anthropocentric, aka human centered. So it was like, well, the sun moves around the sky because little Timmy behaves. That's weird. Like, little Timmy's a fucking god, I guess. Even astronomers who used geometry also believed in astrology and thought that the stars could predict the president. <laughs> Idiots. You know, it's like, hey, fuckers, you're over here, you're over here using logic and geometry. And then, like, you walk to the next room and you look at the stars and you smell the wall and you're like, smells like Trump. Huh? Okay. That's definitely fucking valid. Good idea. But that anthropocentric approach has never yielded any good explanations beyond the realm of human affairs. Anthropocentric. God damn it, man. That's like a marbles in my mouth. Anthropocentric misconceptions have also been overturned in every other fundamental area of science. We now know that living things, including humans, all consist of the same ingredients as rocks and stars and obey the same laws and that they were not designed by anyone. He says uh, Stephen Hawking puts forth this principle of mediocrity, that we are nothing but chemical scum on the surface of the earth on an extremely normal planet. I don't know if you guys have heard that, but that's a famous thing where, where Stephen Hawking is like, you know, hey, bitches, we're not that cool, man. We're just chemical scum. Meaning, because from the soup long ago in the fucking like millions, billions of years ago, you know, when it was the primordial soup, just scum by chance happened. And then all of a sudden replicators were created and then evolutionary time happened. And now here I am, a baboon. But David says, shut up, Stephen Hawking. Rest in peace. You're wrong. I shall refer to that sort of error as parochialism. Fuck. Okay, I gotta be careful, because on that uh, Bill Jordan episode, I, I done accidentally got hammered, because I was like, drink every time he righteously takes the life of a criminal, and then like 18 sips later, I was like, let's buy stuff online. Oh, fuck, I'm still podcasting. So, I might have to shut that, I might have to shut that game down. But here we go. Anthropocentric errors are examples of parochialism. Okay, the, the, the other drink counts. Another influential idea about the human condition is sometimes given the dramatic name Spaceship Earth. So imagine a generation ship, a spaceship on a journey so long that many generations of passengers live out their lives in transit. So if you guys have played the game um, Mass Effect, Mass Effect 2 maybe? Probably some other Mass Effects this applies, but you're on a ship. You know, you're an astronaut. You, you maybe spent 20 years on a spaceship. And, uh, you know, the shooting mechanics were pretty crappy, but, like, it was fine. A lot of people liked it. I didn't like that game that well, but it was kind of cool. Um, so that's the Spaceship Earth idea. It's like, so you're on this generational ship, and it's it's self-cleaning. It, it recycles waste. It's got solar panels. It gives you the food. You grow the food you need. And that generation ship, that's a metaphor for the biosphere. Uh, saying that Earth, you know, we're this, we're this recycling ship. Everything's great. You know, outside the spaceship, the universe is horrible. 
but inside everything's wonderful there's this complex life support system and he's saying that's wrong too the spaceship earth metaphor and the principle of mediocrity have both gained wide acceptance among scientifically minded people to the extent of becoming truisms so he's walking into this whole thing saying like as we're starting to think about good explanations as we're starting to think about the cosmic significance of humans there's been a couple things thrown out one by that wheelchair baron philosopher stephen hawking rest in peace he says yeah humans yeah we're just like we're just like scum on the taint of earth it's like, holy shit man calm down little buddy the other is that earth is this wonderful beautiful thing that must be treasured and it is taking care of us we are the children of earth but david's saying actually both of those are wrong because so so first let's let's look to the spaceship earth okay so he says i'm writing this in oxford england where winter nights are likewise often cold enough to kill any human unprotected by clothing and other technology there is a life support system in oxfordshire today but it is not provided by the biosphere. It has been built by humans. So he goes on to this whole fucking thing about how like, listen, buddy, that, yeah, you want to feel like spaceship Earth, like the, the spaceship is set up to take care of you, but we're just surviving because we're clever, okay? You ever been outside naked in the night in the winter? Me neither, but I, I would imagine it's fucking cold. And you know what happens if you're naked outside, drunk as hell in the winter? You die. So it's like, you're telling me that this thing, this spaceship is set up to take care of me. But if I go sit, but if I go, if I use that bathroom instead of this bathroom, I die. Hmm. This is a pretty shitty babysitter. The only reason that we are able to take care of ourselves is because the original people, Neanderthals, brought knowledge with them, such as tools, weapons, fire, clothing. That knowledge was transmitted from generation to generation, not genetically, but culturally. It was created by human thought and preserved and transmitted in human culture. Today, almost the entire capacity of Earth's life support system for humans has been provided not for us, but by us, using our ability to create new knowledge. As a life support system, it takes knowledge to convert the one into the other and biological evolution never provided us with enough knowledge to survive let alone thrive so he, he's you know we got these two two competing theories of the significance of human beings but actually they both end up in the same spot shapes uh, spaceship earth is like no this is we are just the children of earth but it's like bitch we're not the children of earth we're just clever earth wants to kill us you know mother earth she's a whore and the other side, which is we're just chemical scum on the taint of Earth, is the principle of mediocrity. And it says that all human abilities, including the distinctive ones, such as the ability to create new explanations, they're, they're by necessity parochial. Fuck. Ah, okay, we're going to back this off. That implies, in particular, that pro progress in science cannot exceed a certain limit defined by the biology of the human brain. And we must expect to reach that limit sooner rather than later. Beyond it, the world stops making sense. So, both of those metaphors, and he's triggered, dog. Both those metaphors, if they ask the question whether the scientific revolution and the broader enlightenment could be a beginning of infinity, they would both answer no. Spaceship Earth would be like, shut up, whore, stay in your forest. And Principal Mediocrity would be like, you belong on a taint. They share a conception of a tiny human-friendly bubble embedded in an alien and uncooperative universe. Any assumption that the world is inexplicable, though, can lead only to extremely bad explanations. For an inexplicable world is indistinguishable from one tricked out with magic. And then he basically accuses Richard Dawkins of believing in magic which is like a very savage and rude thing to say to a noted atheist but since the enlightenment we've moved past both of those idiotic metaphors technological progress has depended specifically on the creation of explanatory knowledge this increasingly intimate connection between explaining the world and controlling it 
is no accident, but it is part of the deep structure of the world. Speak to me, David. I want to control the world. Consider the set of all conceivable transformations of physical objects. Some of those, like faster-than-light communication, eh, that bitch never happens because it's forbidden by the laws of nature, we think. Some, like this, the formation of stars out of primordial hydrogen, they happen spontaneously. And some, like converting air and water into trees and converting raw materials into a radio telescope, are possible, but happen only when the requisite knowledge is present. For instance, embodied in genes or brains. Damn. Think about that. So he's saying through massive trial and error and evolutionary time, actual fucking knowledge is contained in genes. But those, so explanations or genes, those are the only possibilities. That is to say, every possible physical transformation to be performed in a given time with given resources or under any other conditions is either impossible because it is forbidden by the laws of nature or achievable given the right knowledge. And so that's telling me if I acquire the right knowledge, 250, rich, jacked, lean, here I come, son. And so again, everything that is not forbidden by laws of nature is achievable. The ability to create and use explanatory knowledge gives people a power to transform nature, which is ultimately not limited by parochial fact, I don't have any more whiskey, as all other adaptations are, but only by universal laws. So I made fun of him for getting all triggered and shit, but he's saying, you know, when you're trying to figure out humans, what is the cosmic significance? You know, there's been all these stories like, Religion in many ways says, you know, humans are the most important thing in the fucking world. But then, you know, Stephen Hawking, that wheelchair-bound genius, no offense. He, uh, see, I said no offense. It's fine. Uh, rest in peace. See, I'm so respectful. He says, hey, dude, we're just scum on the taint of Earth. And there's other people who are like, well, no, no, man, we're children of Earth. And he's saying, nah, bitch, neither of those three is right. We're special. Because with the right knowledge, truly anything that is possible is possible. This is the cosmic significance of explanatory knowledge and hence of people whom I shall henceforth define as entities that can create explanatory knowledge. So he's saying people, when we say people, we're talking about entities that can create explanatory knowledge. So he's even allowing logically the possibility of aliens. God damn it. And he's calling them people. Fuck. If they can create explanatory knowledge, I'm going to die. <sighs> Here we are. For every other species on Earth, we can define its reach simply by making a list of all the resources and environmental conditions on which its adapta adaptations depend. In principle, one could determine those from a study of its DNA molecules. Fuck. So that's saying that the knowledge creation ability of other species is legit bounded in their fucking genes. For humans, it's universal. And so he, he brings up a fucking good example of primates. So we are primates. They all primates require vitamin C. If we don't have it, we will die of scurvy. But their genes do not contain the knowledge of how to synthesize it. So whenever any non-human primate is in an environment that does not supply vitamin C for an extended period of time, it dies. Any account that overlooks this fact will overestimate the reach of those species. Humans, though, we're primates, yet our reach has nothing to do with which environments supply vitamin C. Humans can create and apply new knowledge. So he's saying, you know, you're never going to find chimps in the ocean because, I mean, like a lot of reasons, but one of them being because there's no goddamn vitamin C. But people, fuck, we, dude, we, could, live, we, could, we could live 80 years in the ocean if we have the knowledge, which we do, of how to provide vitamin C through eating damn canned fruit. Similarly, whether humans could live entirely outside the biosphere, say on the moon, does not depend on the quirks of human biochemistry. You know, there's a bunch of oxygen on the moon, apparently, in moon rocks. So all we need to do is just figure out the knowledge in the same way we did vitamin C, and dude, we could be fucking living on the moon. And every organism is a factory for converting resources into, into more organisms. So like, you know, 
every organism wants to convert resources, food, into more, more pandas. So, but humans, we are factories for transforming anything into anything that the laws of nature allow. We are universal constructors. This is crazy. The only uniquely significant thing about humans, whether in the cosmic scheme of things or according to any rational criteria, is our ability to create new explanations. And we have that in common with all people, including aliens. So human reach is essentially the same as the reach of explanatory knowledge itself. An environment is within human reach if it is possible to create an open-ended stream of explanatory knowledge there. That means that if knowledge of a suitable kind were instantiated in such an environment in suitable physical objects, it would cause itself to survive and then would continue to increase indefinitely. And his, his thesis is that creativity, that can continue fucking indefinitely. Knowledge creation is not only subject to error, but errors are common, significant, always will be, and correcting them will always reveal further and further problems. Problems are inevitable. And since the human ability to transform nature is limited only by the laws of physics, none of the endless stream of problems will, will ever constitute an impassable barrier. So. A complementary and equally important truth about people and the physical world is that problems are soluble. By soluble, I mean that the right knowledge would solve them. So all that shit is saying, and we're going to wrap this episode up, holy fuck. But what he's saying is that he walked us into history. Okay, so back in the day and forever until recently, we were, we were just... We were just little monkeys, man. We had maybe we had tools, we had bows, whatever. But like, our knowledge, it was it was filled with bad explanations. And then we had a spark, and that spark was the enlightenment. Trying to criticize, trying to find good explanations. And when we think about the significance of human beings, you now he told us that Stephen Hawking was an idiot. We're not just scum on the taint of Earth. And he also said that that spaceship Earth, we're the children of Earth. We can never go past Earth. That's also wrong. Because humans are universal constructors. Our reach goes as far as the reach of good explanations, which goes across the fucking universe. It's crazy. He's going to keep walking us through this stuff. I don't even know where I am. I got to go get more whiskey because I'm going to keep saying parochial, I assume. But if you want to tune in, if you want to continue this journey with me, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.